Thanks for listening to the nice podcast. I'm Dave Delaney. If you haven't noticed, we've taken a little bit of a hiatus over the last several months. Uh, A big revelation was found. I have ADHD, and that explains a whole lot. And of course, naturally, as a veteran podcaster, I started another podcast all about it, and it's called ADHD Wise Squirrels, and you can find it at wisequirrels.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search ADHD Wise Squirrels. Pop over and have a listen. Let me know what you think. Thanks. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. One of the things I learned is that we all are playing tennis with a better player, right? I mean, no matter <laughs> what level they achieved, in their own mind, their friends were doing better. Right. And so I think we all live with this certain amount of assuming that we're not as big as someone else. Nice. 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 Nice with Dave Delaney. Welcome to Nice, a podcast about communication, collaboration, and becoming better leaders. My guest today is Jeffrey Shaw, keynote and virtual speaker, small business coach, and the author of The Self-Employed Life, which I just finished and loved. Welcome to the show, Jeffrey. Hey, thank you. I'm glad to be here. And thanks for the uh, feedback on the book. It's good to hear. Yeah, yeah. I, I really did enjoy it. Is, it. is Jeff acceptable or Jeffrey? Jeff is absolutely fine. Okay, cool, yeah. cool. I, I couldn't remember if, if, if uh, you know, every once in a while somebody's like, no, I want to be Michael. <laughs> no, I just, you know, when my first book came out three years ago, I had to like make a decision. You know, from that point on as an author, are you Jeff Shaw, Jeffrey Shaw? Uh, I've always just found Jeff Shaw just kind of blends together. It's hard to enunciate clearly. So I, <laughs> went, with, I went with Jeffrey. But, uh, you know, anything out of uh, professionally, everybody calls me Jeff. But I answer to both. I don't care. <laughs> I had an incident years ago uh, when I lived in Ireland of leaving a voice message for Heather, my wife and girlfriend at the time. Uh, she had gone home to the States for the summer and I was still in Ireland and I missed her deeply and had a couple of pints in me. And I, uh, I left a message on her, her, she was with her parents and I left a message on their machine saying, Hey, it's Steve, uh, in Ireland. I love your daughter and realized <laughs> I did say Dave, but it totally came out as Steve. <laughs> and they're like, some guy, somebody called in from Galway, Ireland named Steve who said they loved. And she's like, uh, that's probably Dave. That's awesome. So yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I actually, I struggle with that too. Like with whether I'm going to be David Delaney or mm-hmm. Dave Delaney, but I've always, I've always been Dave Delaney. I'm only David if I'm in trouble with my mom. Uh, but uh, apart from yeah. that, uh, so anyway, <laughs> all right, well, to get into the podcast, the, the, I, I always like to begin with a, a, a simple question, I think, but, uh, the answers are always interesting. So I'll start with this. What is the nicest thing someone has done for you recently? Hmm. 
Gosh, that's actually easy because just a couple days ago, and it involves somebody that we might know or have in common, and it's mm. Mike Michalowicz. Yeah. Hey, do you know? Yeah. Mike, yeah. You know, yeah. he's an awesome guy. So, you know, Mike is one of those people that I, I admire tremendously and, and you know, really uh, aspire to be like Mike. I also say he, I think, is the best website on the internet mm-hmm. uh, because it's it's actually fun like going to his website going to an amusement park <laughs> what's his what's his website address again it's it's mike mccallowitz.com okay. got yes. it his last name is not the easiest one to spell but he's so well known that i think if you get m-i-c-h out the computer will fill in the rest he's that good or just google um, profit first exactly profit first but he um you know just so to have somebody you really admire he, and he just out of the blue now granted he he did endorse the new book and I consider us friends, but out of the blue the other day, he just sent me a text saying, Hey brother, thinking of you, um, wishing you all the success with this book. You're going to kill it or something like that. And it was one of those times when somebody sends you a message, first of all, taken back by, you know, Mike McCallitz taking the time to text me, mm. but also exactly when I needed to hear it. Right. It was that week in the middle of launching a book, the book comes out May 4th. So it was like that, that moment that in that day, when I'm like, oh my gosh, like, is any of this worth it? Like, it's that <laughs> moment, right? Where it's like, what am I working so hard for? And then you get the message from somebody you admire and you're like, there you go. So that's that to me is the advantage of being nice because you just don't know exactly when someone's going to need to receive it. And, and Mike nailed it. That's great. Yeah, it, it, it really is important of taking a moment. I think if you, if I think we all, I hope we all go through this where we think, man, I should really send somebody a text or a, you know, instant message or a call or whatever. And then we're like, ah, and then we get distracted by the rest of the day and we forget about it. Yeah. And I think in those moments, you know, um, uh, a mutual friend, Michael Port did the same for me a while back where he just gave me a call out of the blue and I was like, whoa, Michael. Oh my gosh. And, uh, yeah, and I needed it at that time. So I think yeah. uh, I think if for our listeners uh, listening, our nice makers, um, yeah, take the take a moment and actually uh, and do it. <laughs> I made it a rule for myself during COVID. Honestly, that was one of my part of my survival techniques during COVID because I went into this situation feeling like you know, as I said to other people, I felt like I had a reservoir of strength available to me because I went into it uh, just beginning to write the book. Mm. And it was not, this is like my third rodeo. I've been in business long enough to have been through 9-11, you know, living in Manhattan at the time. Yeah. And then, um, you know, the Great Recession, which affected my photography clients uh, tremendously. And so this was literally my third rodeo. I'm like, okay, I get this. We're going to be, we're going to be in this for, you know, I thought seven to eight months. I didn't quite think a year, but I figured this was going to be a long haul. But I went into it in a really good headspace, so I, I made it a rule to myself that anytime somebody popped into my mind that I would just shoot them a text. And I abided by that because I figured it might be that at that moment I had more strength than somebody else did, mm. and maybe they needed that person to show up. And it really was – it kept me going through the whole pandemic because of how many times I would send somebody a message and they would say back that was exactly what they needed to hear. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I just, like I said, I made it a rule going to the pandemic, but I hope it's something I can stick with. If somebody pops into my mind, I just shoot them off a message. I love that. What, what happens if you don't have their phone number? Oh, my Facebook messenger. Uh, yes, of course. You know, it's of course. one of the two. One of the two is almost, you can almost cover everybody between one of those <laughs> two, right? But for the most part, the people that pop in your mind, you have some relationship with them to begin with. Yeah. You know, and in one, one instance I had, uh, Somebody popped into my mind and her mom had just gotten some really bad health news. Mm. And, 
you know, it was just, and she's not somebody that should be on my mind a lot, but I was walking my dog and somehow she popped into my head. And I'm like, I just, I've just learned to respond to that moment just in case it means something. Absolutely. Have you ever dealt with, um, I'm speaking from experience here, of course, but of facing maybe self doubt where you shouldn't be like, not shouldn't be maybe more of an imposter syndrome kind of thing where it's like, Oh, so-and-so is not going to want to hear from me. Oh my gosh. Do you ever, do you ever get stuck in that thought or anything oh, like all that? The time. Okay. I mean, interesting. Interesting. I, I, don't we so all, it's not just me. <laughs> no, I mean, I just assume that we all, you know, it's, it's interesting, Dave, the, 36 years I have photographed, you know, very affluent, successful people, CEOs. One of the things I learned is that we all are playing tennis with a better player, right? I mean, <laughs> no matter what level they achieved, in their own mind, their friends were doing better. Right. And so I think we all live with this certain amount of assuming that we're not as big as someone else. And, you know, yeah, at the same time, we get feedback. I mean, one of my favorite stories is one day I was out walking my two dogs at the time, and I got a absolutely glowing Facebook message from this woman hmm. going on and on about how wonderful I am. And, you know, I'm reading, I'm thinking this is, this is really nice to receive and I'm trying to, you know, just to take it in. Um, and I thanked her for it. I wrote her back and I thanked her and uh, it was a Facebook message. I thanked her and I said, and at this moment I'm picking up dog poop. <laughs> right because you know first i wanted to be humorous but i also just wanted to bring it down to earth like you know because at the end of the day no matter how who we admire there's a chance they're picking up dog poop of some kind somewhere <laughs> but i definitely so i i often assume i'm not important enough to reach out to somebody else i almost I, i'm almost in that headspace almost all the time but it's in part because of who we hang out with when you hang out with people that you assume are playing a bigger game that you can't help but think, oh, well, you know, I, I will be bothering them if I reach out to them. And, and Mike, in a way, is Mike is one of those guys to me. So for mm, him to, yeah. you know, to reach out uh, was a big deal. It's interesting, too, I guess, because, you know, when when a lot of our and we share similar, uh, you know, friends from the, especially from the speaking sort of circuit. Um, yeah, you you're the people that you are communicating with most and, and who we consider our friends are also like marketing experts who make themselves not out to be better than they are or anything like that. But, but what I mean is they're just, they seem so big right. <laughs> that, that they could be out picking up their poop right now. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's, yeah. yeah, they're, um, but that's part of the, you know, I, I like to look at it as recognition as a strategy, not a destination, yeah. you know, because what we learn is that gaining recognition is does open doors right it is is required as a speaker author like we have to gain certain amount of recognition right. in order to get other opportunities it's just not a destination like my goal in life is not to be a recognizable name or is you know that anybody's going to recognize me although i will tell you three times i have been recognized by my voice as a podcaster in the world and that's nice. the weirdest thing ever like i was in an ice cream shop in cape cod in massachusetts and i i placed an order for ice cream and the woman turns around and says are you the are you the host <laughs> no way and yeah and i'm like i don't think my voice is that distinctive but apparently she's listened enough that she picked up on it that's amazing <laughs> yeah it's interesting too when you go to like uh uh, podcasting conferences. Like when I, my wife and I had a parenting podcast we did in 05. So 2005 wow. to 2008. And we went to like 
uh, uh, podcast meetups and podcasts, like a podcast conference that we used to go to back then. And it was so strange. What's like when somebody you'd meet somebody and they'd hear your voice and they'd be like, Dave, two boobs and a baby, which was yeah. the name of the podcast. Uh, <laughs> <That's awesome>. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and they'd say like, Hey, you know, how's that diaper rash coming along for Sam? And I'd be like, wait, how do you know about my, yeah. my, <laughs> it would be so weird. Yeah, I I continually get shocked by what people know about me, but it's because I've opened my own mouth. Like I just I can tend to I, I tend to wear my heart on my sleeve. <laughs> so I, tend, <laughs> I, I I'm okay with it in the moment until somebody recites back to me what they know about me. I'm thinking, gosh, I'm not sure that you should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if they're keeping notes, it's like, uh-oh. Right. so uh, yeah. So your your book that led this, or it's uh, coming out May fourth, and mm-hmm. and you uh, kindly sent me in advance. Thank you for that. The, uh, the self-employed life, you know, I've been, I've been pretty self-employed for the last 10 years. And so I'm a little later in the game in a, in a weird way. Um, at least that's how, how it is in my head sometimes. But, um, and, and tell me a little bit. So you've, you've alluded to photography, but of course you, you you do a lot more than that. And that's sort of, that's not even how you got your humble beginnings. Cause, you're, cause your humble beginnings were selling eggs <laughs> yeah which i was shocked to hear or to read i was like i just you know new york jeffrey or or you know or miami jeff but like i didn't picture you uh, uh you know out uh knocking on farm or knocking on doors uh <laughs> selling chicken eggs tell us a little yeah. bit about that oh gosh yeah i i come from really humble beginnings um i grew up in a you know what was then a very small country town about two hours north of new york city and Back then, and you know, um, we moved to this town in 1967. So, it, and we shared a phone number with five other families. We had, you know, the proverbial party line because there just weren't enough phone <laughs> lines, and it was that remote. Um, and uh, you know, my father had previously been in the construction business. Um, we lived in an apartment at my grandmother's house originally, and that, until the age of three years old, when my father left the family construction business, which I think. You know, looking back, probably caused a huge, huge brouhaha in his family because, like, nobody left the construction business. But, you know, he knew that he couldn't support what was now three kids. I was the youngest of three. So he took a job with uh, what was a startup computer company that bought up a huge amount of land, farmland, in the middle of nowhere uh, Mm. to build a production plant because, obviously, the land was cheap. And that startup company was IBM. (laughs) <laughs> My father was one of the first 90 employees at IBM's production plant mm. uh, in 1967. And it was an odd upbringing because everybody there was a transplant. I mean, you were either a farmer who probably maybe lost your farm you know, or sold your farm to IBM, uh, or you were from somewhere else. And we were from you know Down County. We were Westchester County where my grandparents lived. And there were a lot of people from New York City. So I truly grew up in the country and um, – I saw an opportunity to make some money at 14 years old, and and that opportunity was I thought it'd be kind of cool to sell eggs door to door, right? <laughs> I just it seemed like a something people would need, and um, and whether I realized it or not, I don't know how keen I was at the time at 14 years old, but part of the impact of that was because most people were from Down County or New York City, so farm fresh eggs was really cool. Mm. So I, I put together this business model. I actually approached – now, mind you, I'm 14 years old. <laughs> this is the way my brain – so I, I approached a local farmer, and, and uh, 
I didn't have access to the cardboard cartons, but he got the cardboard cartons for me. And my mom would drive me on Thursdays to go and she patiently wait. Actually, I think most of the time she probably dropped me off and then went grocery shopping. And I would sit there and fill up these cardboard cartons with eggs. And then um, on Saturdays, I would – two things. I would pack up – my mom owned a beauty parlor – uh, straight out of Steel Magnolias, the movie, like as old-fashioned type of beauty parlor. So right. I'd fill up cases, boxes of, of dozens of eggs for her to bring to her shop, and they would all sell. And then I would uh, borrow my mother's uh, Cutlass, Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme, massive big car that a 14, I couldn't even reach, I could barely reach the gas pedals at 14 years old. And I would drive around my neighborhood and then surrounding neighborhoods, um, and I'd knock on doors and sell eggs door to door. And of course, I eventually developed a, a loyal clientele that would expect eggs every Saturday. But I was always pursuing new business as well and tackling new neighborhoods. I love that. And that was my start. I and I, I have to say, I probably did that for a couple of years. I think I think I did it up until I got my license, which was 16. But then shortly after I had my license, when it actually would have been legal to drive around. <laughs> uh, but at that point, I also had my freedom. So suddenly I looked for bigger pastures. <laughs> and, and selling eggs wasn't going to do it. So, uh, But yeah, those those are my beginnings. Uh, and, you know, wasn't too long after that, I, I went off to photography school and started my photography business at 20 years old. Did you need like yellow pages to drive the, it was the green machine, right? Was that what it was called? Green monster. Green monster. The green monster. Yes. Yeah. Which at some point my brother shot out the back window with a BB gun. So, I mean, it was, (laughs) so the the rear window is duct taped, you know, and to hold the, uh, the shatterproof glass, it doesn't fall in, but if you duct tape it, it just kind of like shakes every bump you hit. Right. Right. Uh, So yeah, there you go. And this, this, these talk about humble beginnings. Um, but no, I don't think I needed the yellow pages, but I could, I knew I could, I really truly could barely see over the steering wheel. This is a big car. <laughs> that's amazing. That's that's such an amazing story. And you talk you you mentioned and I remind me here. I believe you said that you were more you're more introverted and kind of shy, right? Or at least as yeah. a kid. Um so how did you muster up the courage to to do this? Yeah. To sell eggs like or door to door. I mean, you're cold calling door to door. Yeah. Um where I mean, as a as a cute kid, I'm sure you were able to pull it off. Where where you know, as an adult, you'd have the door slammed in your face, probably. But how did you muster up the courage to do that? Hey, you're listening to the Nice Podcast with Dave Delaney. That's me. Visit futureforth.com to learn how we can transform the communication at your organization. And if you need a speaker for your next online event or your in-person conference, are we doing in-person conferences yet? Uh, Soon, I hope. Uh, You can visit DaveDelaneySpeaks.com and uh, you'll learn more about working with me there. All right, let's get back to the show. Uh, You know, I I almost don't know because I... To say I was shy is an understatement. Like, I had paralyzing shyness. I right. really, you know, my goal in life was to hide in the corner of my own home. Like, I, I didn't want to go outside. Uh, very intimidated by neighborhood kids. Mm. Um, but really into personal development and and self-help. And so I would take money from the, making these eggs or my, whatever little allowance I got from my parents. And I would buy like self-help books by Wayne Dwyer. And I would, I would read these things at home and hide them from my family because thinking that way would just have been weird. I had two older brothers and a father. Like it was such a male-driven household that, you know, I was a freak. So um, 
I used to hide it. And, and at one point, I <laughs> this is ridiculous, but I, I, I remember so clear. At one point, I bought a book on self-hypnosis to try to hip, hypnotize myself out of shyness. And, and in hindsight, <laughs> it was basically a book about body language. It was basically, you know, this, you know, kind of create confidence by by body language. And right. so the first time I tried my my I tried pulling off. I did. I mustered up the strength and I, I hung out with some neighborhood kids and tried uh, standing in this cool power pose. And the looks I got were just, I mean, I, I've since looked back and compared it to a cross between Superman and RuPaul. Because <laughs> I, I just knew by the looks I got. And one kid says to me, what the hell's wrong with you? And, and that was the end of, that was the end of my self hypnosis. And <laughs> so, you know, I've asked myself that question many times, but I think we ask ourselves that question or something like that all the time when we're self-employed, which is why. Like, why do we why do we put ourselves through what we do? Because this is not the easy road. And mm-hmm. why was I willing to go, as you asked, you know, door to door? And, and I've come to the conclusion that there's got to be something bigger than our fear. And I don't know that I could identify it at the time, but I knew I, I kind of became addicted to business by selling these eggs, which became bigger than my fear. Cause the fear was there. I mean, I was, you know, I wanted to vomit sometimes, but the fear was there. But what became bigger than the fear for me was one, I was so innately proud of myself for stretching as far as I was. Nobody else was saying so my, you know, my, nobody else in my family, my father, brothers, nobody else was acknowledging my growth, but I was. And that was a big deal to me. Like I was genuinely proud of myself and particularly in an environment where nobody else was ever going to express that they were proud of you. Mm-hmm. So I was being proud of myself and I also got absolutely hooked on what made business work. I was fascinated by the, I've got something to sell and people will buy it concept. And I really, to this day, I feel like I learned everything I've no in business, I learned from selling eggs because I learned about, uh, you know, how to make something marketable. You know, I mean, they could have, and, and I was selling these eggs for a dollar twenty-five mm. uh, a dozen. And I since have googled that in 1978, the average price for a dozen eggs was seventy-eight cents. Uh, ironically, so it was also 1978. Ah. But it, it stood out as seventy, and I was selling them for a dollar twenty-five because I wanted simple math. I bought the eggs for twenty-five cents a dozen from the farmer, and I sold them for a dollar twenty-five. So I made a, do- a dollar a dozen, which mm. is easy. Mm-hmm. And um. But it was it was figuring out how do you sell something beyond its market price? Like what's what makes it such that people would pay more for it? And it was part service, it was door to door, but that wasn't the biggest thing. The biggest thing was the authenticity piece. What I realized is that the biggest selling point was the fact that they were farm fresh. Like I was selling farm fresh grass fed eggs before they were a thing. <laughs> yeah, right. And because everybody there was a transplant many people from the city that had huge sex appeal. Like they were genuinely farm fresh. Uh, and I, I tell the story in the book, how I used to leave some chicken poop on the eggs to really, <laughs> right. ex, to really accentuate the, 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 the authenticity of them. And they, they actually had a lot of chicken poop on them, but I would clean a lot of it off, but I always left a little bit. Yeah. Right. Um, I, that Dave, I have to say, I got, I really almost feel like I got addicted to the puzzle of business. I was fascinated by the sales process, the marketing process, why people bought, what was the psychology behind it, how you made something appealing. And that has stayed with me ever since. I mean, I literally, I have never had a traditional job. I've never received a paycheck. I've been self-employed from that moment on. 
And I think largely driven by just insane curiosity about what makes people tick. Yeah. And you mentioned in your book, you said, uh, and I have a quote that I wrote, you can charge whatever you want for anything, regardless of what you charge. It's up to you to get to or sorry, it's up to you to point out where the value is greater than the cost to your customer. Right. Which is exactly that. So yeah. how do you maybe fast forward to, to now or your photography business even, but how do you set prices? Like how does somebody set prices when they don't know what their industry prices are or what their competitors are charging? Well, that's just it. Um, none of that matters. I mean, pricing is completely arbitrary unless you're selling something that's commoditized, right? Or, or unless if you're trying to win on price, then you need to care what other people are are charging. But then again, I even question if you if you price trying to win on price, it's quite possible that you're not making any money, right? Because you haven't done the work to find out whether it's even a profitable price. Uh. Uh, so to me, pricing is completely arbitrary. What pricing pricing is all psychology to me, because pricing creates perception and it positions your business. Okay, pricing creates perception and positioning. Mm. So. And what I mean by that is think about the perception you get. Pricing constantly creates a perception. What's the perception you get of a restaurant that doesn't have prices on the menu? Your perception is that it's really expensive. Yeah. Right. What's your perception of Walmart style pricing? That it's affordable. Right. How many times have we cho- – we all have – there have always been times we've chosen to not buy something because it was priced so inexpensively we perceived it as being poor quality. Yes. Or the opposite is true. How often we are led to believe something is going to be of exceptional quality because it was expensive and maybe we turn find out it's not. Or how about the stores that we, you know, we walk down uh, any mall or street, Main Street, USA, we walk down we, the stores we decide not to go into because our perception is that we can't afford to be in there. Mm. Right? It's all perception. So the key is you first have to decide what's the perception you want to create amongst the audience that you're trying to reach and then position yourself aligned with their perception Mm. it's 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 completely arbitrary i mean as a photographer uh, and it also is your different it can be your differentiator i mean as a photographer when i started out as when i first started as a photographer i tried in my hometown which didn't fly because i was completely misaligned with the area because i had a i had the perception i wanted to create was i was i wanted to be a high-end portrait photographer. Um, that was that was not a perception that worked in my hometown. So after three years of struggling, I, I started over again. And I, I realized that who I needed to work with were affluent families. Uh-huh. Not because I thought that they had tons of money to give me, because honestly, for where I came from, I didn't even know what a lot of money was. But what I realized is that people with discretionary income buy luxury items, which is what photography is. And they also have a mindset about about handing photographs down from generation to generation. So when I pursued that audience, I looked at the perception I wanted to create and realized I didn't want to be really perceived like a photographer. I wanted to be perceived as a, as an artist. So I compared myself to painters. They were hiring from what I could tell doing a little research that they were hiring portrait painters and paying like 20 grand to have a portrait of their children painted. Mm. And I'm like, I can, I can replicate that look in a really good quality way for half that price through a photograph. 
So I became the photographer that at 23 years old, I set out to have an average sale as a photographer of eight to $10,000. When your average photographer, there were three other photographers in the town. I'll bet that they were probably lucky if they made 500 bucks a shoot. Mm. And here I am. So it's a perception, but how do you create that, right? So I want people to pay $8,000 for a series of photographs, not a, not a not one single photograph, but a series of them. How do you create that perception? You have to be priced high enough that people have a perception that it's high quality, that it's exclusive. I had to match their perception of how they see themselves in the world. They are, as a clientele, see themselves in the world as only worthy of the best and willing to pay for it. So... For and that, that's across the board, no matter how high end, low end. If you, if your clients, if the people you want to reach see themselves as needing to be budget conscious, then you want to price yourself in a way more like a Walmart style that creates the perception that they're not paying one one hundredth of a cent more than they have to because they're budget conscious. Mm. That's interesting. So I, I, I often hear advice from, uh, you know, different business coaches or I've read it before about, you know, okay, whatever you're charging, double it. Well, what, what are your thoughts yeah, on that? I mean, it, I, that's just too general for my taste. I like to have I know, right? Right. But I think, it, like I said, but it's you do positioning. See that. Yeah, right. I get, yeah. But it's, it's absolute position. I mean, there's, there's probably some truth to it because most of us undercharge our value. Mm. Um, you know, being in a creative business. And and when I started out as a coach 12 years or so ago, I did start out by coaching a lot of creatives and the reason creatives, but I think that relates to most people as to why they undercharge is because what they're really good at is so easy for them. They don't charge a lot of money for it. Mm. Right. It's like I, one of my clients is a really highly specialized computer programmer and he could fix problems in companies in like 30 minutes, but it would save the company $5 million in production time. And he's charging like $125 an hour. I'm like, you're insane. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It only took you an hour. It saved them $5 million. Right. So, uh, but it was so easy for him. Like he could see what other people couldn't see and he would get things fixed really easily. So I think one of the challenges people face in, in trying to figure out pricing is they, whatever comes so easy to them, they tend to not see the value in. So that is why I think a lot of coaches say, whatever you charge and double it. But to me, it's all about positioning. It's about knowing what audience. I mean, for a lot of my work today, a lot of my coaching work, I probably could double it. I probably could charge a lot more than what I charge. But the fact of the matter is of who I want who I want to work with and how I'm positioned. I want to work with self-employed small business owners. So I'm not charging corporate rates. Could I? Yes. Could I build a whole practice serving corporations? Absolutely. I've dabbled in it. It's not my favorite work. Mm. I like working with self-employed businesses that are, are the decision makers because we can get things done. We don't have to go through committees. Mm-hmm. Right. So my pricing is is palatable for a self-employed business owner as a coach. It's palatable. Do I think it's super easy? No, but it's palatable and I can get them there. And that's that's because that's where I want to be positioned. I want to be not only do I want to be positioned for the audience I want to reach. I want to be positioned for the audience that I want to reach to do the work that I love to do. So at the end of the day, it's selfish. 
<laughs> uh, in the best possible way. In so, the best possible way. Yeah. So your book revolves around your self-employment ecosystem, which is a big part of the self-employed life, the book, which I encourage folks to pre-order, uh, to, to read and discover more about that. But can you elaborate a little bit about that self-employment ecosystem? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I feel like this is the answer I always wish somebody gave me 30 years ago because <laughs> there's so many misnomers about being self-employed. You know, when I start, I had the concept for this book and of course I did my due diligence. And one of the first things I did is I went to Amazon. I wanted to see what books were out there for self-employed people and was actually shocked that every book out there, if you search self-employed in Amazon, uh, there aren't many books that come up, but those that do are all about taxes. I'm like, this is not the what's forefront of my mind as a self-employed business owner. What's on my mind as a self-employed business owner is how I'm getting through the day or how how I'm going to turn the business around during tough times, like the big issues. And so two things really stood out to me. One is that there are no books available. And the second thing that stood out to me is why is it after 36 years, I'm for the first time even Googling this, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And I realized that, that that's fundamentally, we self-employed people are so used to doing things on our own, we tend to not even reach out for help. You know, we're so used to just like, just grit and grind and going at it that that we don't, I couldn't believe that I actually never even checked before. Yeah. So um, this book to me is, it's it's the solution to the answer to, to for every single self-employed person I've ever asked why they became self-employed has the exact same answer or some variation of it, which is I went into business for myself because I wanted to control my destiny or my future or the hours I work to which I say, how is that going for you? Mm. And everybody laughs like that idea that I'm going to become self-employed to control my destiny. What you realize when you become a business owner is that the world is uncontrollable. The circumstances of being in business in the world are uncontrollable. Mm-hmm. Like as if we didn't know economies can turn and we knew markets can shift and trends can change. Now we know there could be a global pandemic. Right? Right, I mean, yeah. who knew a year and a half ago that that was even a possibility of shutting down our businesses. So there are so many uncontrollable circumstances but when I really look deeper at that, then at the question, like, well, then how can I help people? I realize that what I have done throughout my 36 years in business, which I fully and wholeheartedly believe in, is that you can't, we can't control the circumstances. Going into business to control our future is a myth. We can't control the circumstances, but we can control the environment we create for the results we want. Mm-hmm. If you set up everything you want, if you set up the environment for the results you want and you do it with with clarity and commitment and and you know true being in the game first of all i think you're you're probably 95% on your way to success and if you if it isn't successful i think it's easier to shift cuz you can look at what's not working mm-hmm. and that's why i created the self-employed ecosystem as almost a framework so, and then I, of course, I'd ask myself, well, what are the pieces? And it really comes down to three big buckets. They are personal development, business strategies, and daily habits. And to be successful being self-employed, all three of those elements of your environment have to exist in good health. Just like an, uh, an ecosystem in nature, if any one element is off, it can kill the entire ecosystem. Mm. And... 
every self-employed person that, that I've met, when, and I actually have now created an assessment so people can discover this on their own, everyone's going to be weak or non-existent in one of those three. And I can point out one by one why not one of those three elements, personal development, business strategy, and daily habits can, can be missing. Now, innately, everybody's pretty strong in the business strategies. They're putting in a lot of action and a lot of effort. One has to question whether is it the right-sized effort, right? Is it the right effort for the right results? That has to be looked at. The ones that tend to be missing or weak, one is personal development, right? We're in such a hurry to get the work done that we, we may not be putting the effort into developing ourselves uh, as much as we need to. And here's why that's important. Personal development, and by personal development, I mean looking at your limiting mindsets, uh, determining how you can think bigger, really embracing what you deserve, not just what your brain thinks you should have, but what you deserve, how you think bigger, how you get outside of your expectations. The reason that is critical is because it increases capacity. Mm. And when you're self-employed, your level of success is directly proportionate to your level of personal development. So you have to, in order to actually grow your business, you have to increase the capacity of within yourself in order for your effort to fit in. Otherwise, you're putting in a lot of effort and action into a container that hasn't expanded, a mindset that hasn't expanded to actually believe you deserve more business. Mm -hmm. Okay, So that's a very often personal development is a missing component. So we have a lot of effort going in. And that's why people end up feeling like they're all over the place or they feel like they're a hamster on a wheel because they're putting in a, they're grinding out a lot of effort, but they haven't created the capacity for it to go anywhere. So they're, they're stuck by the same limited thinking. And then the other end is the daily habits, uh, which I, I, I think are so you need to have consistent daily habits that keep you moving forward and keep you from being derailed in the uncertainties of being in business for yourself. What's interesting about these three components is that they're not in equal amounts and they're not in balance. A balanced ecosystem does not mean equal parts. Just like if you look at your body as an ecosystem, you know, what are we, with 60% water or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, water, blood, organs, they're not in equal pers- equal proportions, but they're all in, they're all a necessary integration. Right. Right. Same thing in a business. You're not going to spend as much time in your daily habits. The what I teach the book, you could actually do in 15 minutes. Right. But it's the consistency of it. 15 minutes every day of working on your having a, a habit of working on your mindset. 15 minutes every day of journaling can go a long ways to balance the eight hours a day of hard work that you're putting in. So they're not equal. But not one of those three elements could be missing. And the result is that you have a healthy and thriving self-employed ecosystem. And that's when things really start moving forward. How do we know when they're balanced correctly? Because I'm sure I'm sure the balance or that you know ratio or call it what you like, but kind of is, is different for different people, perhaps. Like how do you how do you find that sweet spot? I mean, maybe you know once the you know, the clients are come ringing your bell and I don't know what ringing your bell means calling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's an old hotel metaphor, I think. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, you know, flow, right? I mean, we, we know the feeling of when things are just clicking, when we mm. feel like we're in flow. The problem is, is that 
when things are clicking and we're all like in flow and things are going great, we we tend to we tend to like push aside the personal development, the habits, and then we wonder why we looped right back around to where we started again. Yeah. Right. That's what happens every time. It's, it's like when we when we get cranking, or you know, I'm too busy to do those things now. And it's I I don't think I in this book I don't equate it to it, but I think in uh, in one of my keynotes I I, ref, I equate it to if you have a virus and you go and get some antibiotics, um, the doctor will literally tell you you have to finish the bottle even if you start feeling better. Oh uh, okay? yeah. Because if you don't, you can have a relapse. Like there's a point where when you take an antibody that or antibiotic, there's a point where you feel like you've recovered, mm-hmm. but there's still more pills in the bottle. And a lot of people are like, oh, I'm better. So you just throw away the bottle. But mm-hmm. the doctor or the pharmacist will tell you, no, you have to finish the prescription all the way through. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you have a higher risk of a relapse. And that is exactly what happens when people get into flow and they get cranking and next thing you know, they've let go of their personal development or daily habits. When, when I hired my very first business coach in 1999, long before it was fashionable, mm. my, my first phone call with my first business coach, uh, and these were peak years in my photography business. I had an eight week waiting list, but I reached, I had a coach because I, I just wasn't as happy as one would expect to be when you think your dreams have been fulfilled. I found it kind of empty and and lonely, honestly. I felt like I wanted a partner in the business without sharing the profits. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I found out about this thing called a business coach, uh, and I, I found one, and I hired him. And my first phone call with him, I was explaining to him that, okay, where I'm at in the business. You know, I was I was all business. I didn't think I was hiring. I didn't know this coaching thing, so I didn't think it was going to have anything to do with personal development. I just thought it was going to be all business advice. So I was explaining to him that in my photography business, one year – we would have a really high average sale, but the volume would be down. And the next year, the volume would be up, but the average sale would be down. And I remember literally saying to him, I said, well, if you can help me get those two things right, that's the next level of the business. Mm. Like, how do I go from a million dollar to you know $2 million business? And um, he said, well, you do know it's you that's causing it, right? Mm. I'm like, Pfft me like how is it me like you know <laughs> it's always you know the economy or some other thing right like how is it me yeah and he said and he he nailed it he said well i can guarantee you that the year that your average sale is down the next year you're putting all your effort into increasing the average sale and you're not paying attention to the volume and the next year the volume is down so you're putting all your attention on the volume and not the average sale mm. and he was a hundred percent correct and when my business really took off, I mean, it was already doing well. But after what, when I say took well, here's the difference. Yes, sales went up, but the biggest difference was I put in half the amount of effort to get the same results. And it was because I finally got it right. I understood that often when we hit success, we take our eyes off something else. And then we're, we, we end up being stuck in this cycle. And that is very true of the self-employed ecosystem. Like, the, you know, if we, if we do the work to get a, create a thriving ecosystem, the biggest danger is that when it's going really well, we're going to take our eye off something. Mm. Or we're going to stop putting our effort into something. And then we're going to end up where we started. And we're going to wonder why being in business for ourselves feels like a never-ending loop. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So you t- you made a point there. You said you, your business was going very well. I just want to elaborate a little bit more because, you know, this, and, and of course, this is, you know, a big part of what you do as a business coach. You said your business was going well, but you still sought out a coach um, 
for, for, for advice or, you, you know, you mentioned you, you were lonely. You didn't have a partner mm-hmm. in the business, but at the same time, you didn't want to like share your profits <laughs> yeah. with, with, which makes sense. Um, so why a business coach? Yeah. You know, it's, you can kind of, you know, I guess the, the answer to that is sort of in my egg story too, but I think this is true in all our stories, which is that even when things are going well for us, the most successful minded people also believe that they could be doing better. You know, it's, it's sure. not, it's rarely a, you know, especially, like I said, especially the, the, the level headed, the person who, uh, recognition is not a destination, right? Mm-hmm. That, that person is likely to always be holding both truths, which is I'm happy with my life and I believe I could be happier. I'm, I'm happy with this level of my success and I believe I'm capable of more. Right. Um, those are my ideal coaching clients as well. I mean, it, and that took me a long time to learn as a coach because in the beginning it was easy to, to want to help the people that needed the most help. Uh, the problem is that they have a long ways to go from where they are to, to achieving true success for them. Mm. Um, which turns out to not be your ideal client as a coach, because if they don't get, big measurable results they're less likely to tell other people you don't have an evident portfolio of your successes to share with others right um so the ideal coaching client are people that are already reasonably happy with where they're at they just know they could do better i one of the the telltale signs for me is that when i have a, a ideal client is they will typically say something like you know i they'll express that things are okay. I mean, they, they, they could be happier, but they'll almost always say, I feel like I'm all over the place. <laughs> almost right. always. And why, why that's important to me and that, why that's such an indicator to me is because the truth of the matter is they actually have a lot of good stuff going on. Everything just needs to be tweaked, right? Their brand message is just off. Like they know who they are. They've even gotten to the point where I say there, but they just, I need to work with them to pull out more of who they are, what makes them marketable, and then translate it into a really good marketing message. Because you can know who you are, but the point of marketing is, do the people you want to reach know who you are and what you do and how you can help them? Yes. So a lot of it is just tweaking. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of it's rearranging to the point that, I mean, literally, sometimes I'll, I'll work with a client, and when we're working on their branding and their website, I can literally take bits and pieces all over their website and rearrange it. Now, granted, usually the work I'm doing is more dramatic than that, but mm. the information is there. And in fact, usually the most important things are tucked the furthest away, mm. which does not work today because today in business, we need to get people's attention in seconds, milliseconds. We don't have time for them to get your best, juiciest stuff on an interior page. They're either going to get it when they land on that website. To be, they're at least going to get it to the degree that they're compelled by your brand message that they're willing to even scroll with their finger, mm. right? Mm-hmm. But they certainly, you certainly do not have the time to be mediocre in the beginning and wow them on an interior page. You won't get that chance. Yeah, and that right? moves that, or to your point, or, or from the book, you talked about like replacing, you know, the the word marketing and thinking of it more of it as enrolling, right? So yes. like enrolling people from from looking at your websites and getting them to sign on or or to fill out the contact form or whatever that call to action is. Yeah, and that's like in the book, I introduced this whole concept of hug marketing, right. which is my reframe of uh, of of a marketing funnel, um, because everything you do 
as a business owner, particularly when you're self-employed, again, because there's, there's a deeper relationship when you're self-employed with the people you're serving. Mm. And because it's a relationship-based business versus a transactional one, people that are deciding to do business with you, and I think this is broader in the world at, at large today, uh, and I feel valid in saying this because I've been in business for 36 years, and the, probably the biggest shift is that people make a decision on who they want to do business with based on how they feel about that business more than I've ever seen before. Mm. Like there's an energetic decision. Like I don't feel good about that. I don't, I don't feel aligned with that company's values, that brand's values. Like a lot of the reason why we choose to support or not do business with a brand today is because of how we feel about that brand. Mm-hmm. Energy, the, the, the energy that you create, the energetic response that you want that can be created in an, in a in an instant like what somebody feels when they see your marketing what someone fe- look at it this way what causes someone to open up an email if you're doing email marketing the subject line that's it right if that that subject line is your biggest barrier if that subject line doesn't make somebody feel like they want to open it they don't open it okay so that's that's just where we're at with marketing today. And I actually quite like it. Do I think it's more challenging in business? Absolutely. I like a challenge. Anybody that's self-employed, like a challenge. Otherwise, we wouldn't have bothered. <laughs> that's true. Right? That's but what, true. I, what I like about it is I, I like living in a world of people that are making decisions based on how they feel about a business and a brand more so than just I should because they're the, they're the brand to buy into or, you know, there's some kind of a status. I, I like the fact that I think it's just better values in a world when people are making a decision based on how they feel about a company and what that gives us as businesses, uh, both a high bar to meet and the, uh, the right to do is to be very clear on what's the energy we want to create by what we're putting out that captivates and compels the audience we want to reach. And I think you would make, all right, I'm sure you make a great business coach because, uh, you know, from what we've talked about and from your book, I feel that you, you do thrive in that not, f- well, maybe fearful but, um, moment, but I think you've really got to kind of push the envelope a little bit. And I think y- y- you personify that in this, you know, right back to like, you know, shy Jeff knocking on doors, selling eggs, you know, much again, like that, that would seem horrific to a lot of people and sounded possibly like it, it was kind of horrific to you if you'd stopped long enough and thought about it. But it seemed to me like you're more interested in just testing and seeing what would work and doing it and then thriving on the energy from that positive outcome, as opposed to just being, you know, stuck in a fearful box and not doing anything. Yeah. I just, you know, I, at the end of the day, Dave, I think I have, I am, I am just driven by emotions. Like I said, yeah. that's why I was an outcast in my family, if you will, because I was, a, in a, I was brought up in a very male environment uh, who didn't think, act, or behave like me. Right. Um, or I should say, they all behaved and acted like one another. You know, I mean, I was the kid that, as a little kid, probably, I think my eighth birthday, um, I was given a motorcycle because my older brothers drove me. I didn't want a motorcycle. Like, take right. me to an art museum. <laughs> right, right. Like, I mean, it just, you know, and I've I've tried to, to forgive because it's just, it was the time of the age and it's the way it was. But, you know, when you're the youngest of three boys and your older brothers are exactly like your dad... Yeah, and the three of them are you know all in cahoots and behave, and I my behavior, thought processes, everything was so different. Um, 
you know, they, they, they were non-communicative. I, I liked nothing more than sitting down with my mom and her girlfriends and having discussions. Right, right. <laughs> you yeah. know, um, they, my, when my father would just give up and he, he and my brothers would go off fishing, I'd go antiquing with my mother and her, her friends. Right. Because, you know, so I just have always liked the emotional side of life. Mm-hmm. So for me, I've always been driven by the emotions of business. That's why I was selling those eggs. Like what intrigued me was really getting into the emotions of why people chose to pay more for these eggs, the emotion of there being chicken poop on the eggs. Right. What I feel has happened literally over the past 36 years I've been in business, is, and it, this is what excites me so much, is that I think we're finally living in a world that's closer to the way I think. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I think we are a more emotionally driven world. And I think most self-employed people are emotionally driven. Um, I, I think we see, we're seeing a lot of movements in society where people are getting those members of our society that actually have more emotions and are more driven by instinct. Like this is the world I've been dreaming of. <laughs> because, right. you know, and you know, as a speaker, we have a lot of very intellectual friends that yeah. are speakers. And I would... You know, I would sit there and listen to them recite their facts and research. And I'm like, you know, you can give me research all day. But I'll tell you what, my gut tells me it's going to be different. My gut tells me that research says one thing, but I think there might be a different response. And I will always trust my gut before I trust research. I pay attention to research. You know, I'm definitely, yeah. I pay attention to science. It's, it's a part of the equation. But at the end of the day, I will allow my my emotions and gut instinct to if challenge, if not overcome what the, because in my mind, if you put the if you put gut instinct up against the brain, I think the gut will always be a smarter choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one, uh, I, and I want to be respectful of your time, and I know we only have a few minutes left, and I do want to get to the lightning round uh, of questions. So I'm, I'm going to get to those in one sec, but I did want to point one thing out that that really stuck out to me. I do have other things I want to talk about, but I, I really encourage people to buy the book, um, things like the Wisdom Folder, which I thought was brilliant, and and about your 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 uh, your thoughts on on niches or, or niches or wherever you're from, <laughs> depending. Yeah. Uh, I'm Canadian and I live in the States, so I get confused. Um, in I'm so many ways. And I get confused. I'm not sure if it's a niche or a ditch. Niche. I just, I, I like to call it niche because I like to say niche the ditch. Or right. Excuse me, ditch the ditch. The niche. niche so yeah. I prefer to say niche, but it could be niche. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've been in the States long enough. Like I've been here 14 years. So I've been here long enough to start to forget. Like how I how to I'll say I'll say process to an American and process to Canadian and I'm totally backwards right <laughs> like and then I'll say sorry because you know because <laughs> you that's, do that's what we do <laughs> um, but the other thing that I wanted to mention was your what's going right journal and this is something I just celebrated a birthday and thought you know what and I I've been dabbling with journaling again I did journal a lot when I was much younger. And so this is something I've been doing much more of lately, but I've been falling into some of my, my negative journaling habits when I was much younger, where I was miserable and I would write just negative things in my journal, which is good to do. It's better to get it out. Right. But at the same time, 
it, it doesn't put you in the most positive place. And, and so what I started doing, which is something I, I stole from what you, you talked about in the book or borrowed, I guess, is what's going right. And, and so I've actually started, uh, like my own little 365. So I'll, I'll turn 50 next year, um, uh, on my next birthday. So every day this year leading up to my 50th, I will start every journal entry with what's going right. And in the few days of my 49th year, uh, this has been going great. I've been really enjoying uh, journaling again and, and, and just starting each day on a positive note. Um, but where did you get this idea from? And talk, you talk a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, this, this has been the biggest game changer for me. Um, and again, always, you know, being a self-employed person my whole life, I think, you know, I'm always looking for ways if I'm going to teach it, I try to explain uh, and put it in real life uh, perspective. And I think the fact matter is when you're self-employed, I think for all of us, we never have enough time. And I think it's even worse when we're self-employed because mm. we're wearing so many hats. There's just never enough time. Mm-hmm. So I liked, I like results. I like to figure out hey, – I even tell my, my gym trainer, like – give me the least amount I can do for the biggest result. Like that's just the way I look at things. Like I have the least amount of time, but I, I don't, I, and I hate wasting time. Mm. And I just, I had a hard time with gratitude journals to be honest with you. And and I feel bad because I think gratitude is a great characteristic and it's something we should have in our lives. It just didn't do anything for me. And I found I never, ever stuck with a gratitude journal because if I woke up in the morning, I mean, I've geared my life to making sure I live gr- grateful for what I have every moment of my life. So if I wake up and the sun is shining and I'm breathing and my dog is next to me, I'm good. I'm grateful, right? Yeah. But it just didn't have tangible results. So I started the what this idea of a what's going right journal actually at one of my lowest points in life, which is good because it's also exactly when you need it the most. I think it's a practice. It's one of the daily habits that I, I offer in the book, and it's uh, one that is particularly important in the hardest of times. And I started it right after I had moved to Miami. Uh, I moved here in a relationship. The relationship broke up shortly thereafter. I did decide to stay in Miami, but now I'm living somewhere. I don't know anybody. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I was definitely pulling back the lever on my photography business to the extent, and it kind of, it, it slowed down much quicker than I anticipated. So now there were, it was financially complicated because of the, the incoming the uh, building up of a new business as a coach was not going as fast as the decline of a photography business when I had kind of decided to leave, you know, kind of start getting out of the business. Right. So full of challenges. And as we know, when, when life is full of challenges, it's hard to see what's going right. I thought, I thought, I thought when life is full of challenges, you sell eggs. Oh yeah. (laughs) Well, similarly, I use eggs to make waffles and that's a whole other topic. That is Uh, waffles are my answer to everything. Um, (laughs) I'm coming to Miami for those waffles, uh, waffle Sundays, one Sunday a month. So, but, um, there's a lot of eggs and waffles too. (laughs) But so what I was looking for was something that gave a more tangible result. And I do, you know, I said a moment ago, like I will always lead with emotions, but I pay attention to science and research and, I do, there are ways you can retrain the brain. And the What's Going Right journal is just that. So what it is, it's a daily practice. Now, for me, it's the only thing I journal. Now, I, I fully support journaling just to let things out. But my What's Going Right journal is about a 10-minute practice where I every sentence, what's going right is, what's going right is. And I will list a dozen or two things mm. um, of paying attention to what's going right. Because here's what we do know about brain psychology is that what we focus on, we get more of, right? You can't unsee it. 
And that's true of it's it's a very similar psychology to if you've never heard about a movie or book and somebody tells you about it, suddenly you see it everywhere. Mm. Okay, it's the same brain priming that's going on, right? So once your brain is primed to see something, you can't unsee it. And so the more you acknowledge what's going right, uh, and the list kind of picks up speed. Like I'll some some days, believe me, I'll start off kind of slow. Like, okay, what's going right here? Um, okay, let me keep thinking. All right, I got it. It's going to come any minute now. What's going right? <laughs> right. And then something comes and then you're like, oh yeah, well that too. Oh yeah. And then this person introduced me to this person. Oh, and then all of a sudden, like something big, like, you know, last week I was invited to be a contributor to Entrepreneur Magazine. I'm like, yeah, and I'm like, right, right. But it means that's like, 12th on my list i'm like oh yeah and then that (laughs) it should have been you know it could have been one of the most the top ones right but a lot of times what happens is we don't the our biggest accomplishments in any given day aren't necessarily what stand out to us the most it's the little things it's the mike mccallowitz sending me a text which did make it into my what's going right journal the next day yeah um so what i love about the practice of what's going right journal is that it is it's it feels good in the moment but I truly believe it brings about tangible results because when you start training yourself to see what's going right, what are you going to see? More of what's going right. And you just, you start over, that starts overpowering how we are, our brains are wired to only see what's going wrong. We're wired for survival. We're always going to remember the one criticism over the nine compliments, right? Because we're wired that way. But this is a way of starting to see more of what's right than what's wrong. And you'll start seeing more of what's right. Next thing you know, you're a happy camper living in Nirvana because what you're seeing is what's going right. And like I said, to me, it just brings very tangible results where I start I start getting more good business coming in when I'm in a good frame of mind of what's going right. Well, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna continue doing it, and uh, hopefully, you'll see my name as a, a speaker in more events because that's what I'm working on now. So there we'll see. Go. Yeah, <laughs> I I'm gonna count on it. All right. So lightning round. Let's uh, let's do this, and then we'll we'll wrap things up for the day. So complete this sentence. Nice guys and gals. Finish first. What's a nice book you recommend for fellow nice makers? Sell the way I always, I always have to be careful. I get this right. Sell the way you buy, by uh, David Premer. Oh yeah, I made a note of that. Actually, I need to oh, I need to check so good. that. Uh, how is Jeff Shaw nice to himself? I kayak a lot, <laughs> and that is just such a treat for me to be out on the ocean, kayak like that. That's a treat. My partner and I we pack up some wine, and it probably is the it's just the nicest thing I do for myself. Not not as much uh, kayaking in Manhattan. Uh, no, not existed. That, that's a very become a very much a Miami thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you traded in or you you bought the what was it the Mini Cooper? Is that right? Yeah, I had a Lexus SUV when I drove down here from New York City and traded in for a, a Mini convertible. Uh, but in, in New York City, I would bike. Like I had a bicycle, but yeah. I came. I traded that in for for kayaking down here in Miami. Yeah, when I was, you know, because I'm from downtown Toronto, and so I would ride my bike everywhere. I was always for like accidental exercise, uh, you know, where you're just riding everywhere, you're not even thinking about it. And uh, yeah, moving to Nashville, you know, where you need to drive everywhere has been, yeah, uh, yeah it's been challenging that way. <laughs> uh, okay, and then what if if you had a billboard, what would it say? Oh my gosh, if I had a billboard, what would it say? Um, 
Hmm. I'm going to I'm going to say that it was say something I hope serves everybody else even more than myself because I don't feel like I need to advertise myself. But it would say something I, I I need to say to myself often, which is when the world looks like it's falling apart, trust it's coming together for something bigger than you can imagine. Ooh, I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Jeff, Jeffrey, <laughs> to everybody, <laughs> to everybody else, it's Jeffrey. <laughs> to me, it's Jeff. It's All absolutely. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. And I do want to encourage everybody to pick up or pre-order the Self-Employed Life because trust me, it, it is a great book, and there's so much, so much good stuff in there. So, uh, and I do want to thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was uh, very nice of you to have me. Thanks for listening to the Nice Podcast. Theme music provided by Alistair Crystal at alistaircrystal.ca. Hey, if you enjoyed the conversation, please take a moment to leave us a review. The links are in the description. I'll have more of that soon. Did you know that new subscribers of the Nice Maker email newsletter receive a free copy of my little ebook, Improve with Improv? Each Friday, I share nice stories, tools, tips, and much more. And you can grab it now from nicemaker.co or by clicking the link in the episode description. I'm Dave Delaney. Take care and be nice. <laughs>